0: All right, good morning, uh, Redemption Hill. We're happy to be with you again this morning. I'm grateful to have an opportunity to be up here. I wish the room was full of, of uh, all the people that I love so much, um, looking at chairs, and, uh, you know, just be honest, this, this, is, this is strange. But I'm glad to be here, I'm glad to have the privilege to open the Word of God this morning, and uh, we'll be looking at John chapter 9 uh, continuing our Advent season. And um, just a- as a quick aside on that, the, the idea of, of meeting remotely, I know that I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this, knowing that we'd have to just record um, to an empty room, uh, which I have no problem just throwing out there and making public and obvious, because um, it's strange. But I was thinking about what we normally do around our TVs. You know, it's, th- This is not Seinfeld. This is not the evening news. This is not Dancing with the Stars or The Masked Singer. Um, this is, this is lean-forward media. So um, instead of kicking our, our feet up and, and looking to be entertained and receive, uh, sort of to turn off, which is how I use TV after a long day, is to kind of turn off my mind, for better or worse. That is not a, a, a recommendation. Um, this is different than that. Turn on your minds. Turn on your hearts. I know that's hard to do when you're on a couch looking at what is normally used to turn off your mind. Uh, but I just encourage to whatever, uh, whatever degree you're able, turn on your mind this morning as we open up the Word of God. Because it, it gives light to our darkness. And we really need that, especially in this season. So, uh, like I said, this is the last Sunday of Advent, uh, 2020. And, and so far, we've looked at Jesus as being the light of the world We've seen how he's the light of hope, that, uh, that true hope is found in the living Christ. And what you believe about who Jesus is really matters. Um, we can't just, call, and we've been over this, but we can't just call him a good teacher or a good man, that, that true hope is found in who Jesus is, that he is the living God. We've seen that, uh, the, that Christ is the light of love, that in humility Christ came to earth uh, at the command of the Father, and that humility didn't dry up when he was rejected uh, by the people that he came to love. we am seeing that Christ is the light of joy last week, that Jesus came to show us God and to actually be with his people, and that changes the way that we live our life. That changes the way that we deal with difficult things. That changes the way that we deal with a difficult job and a difficult spouse and with cancer, and uh, with the highs and the lows of life, the fact that Jesus came to show us God changes how we live every day of life. And lastly, this morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus as the light of peace, the light of peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and we celebrate that uh, during this season, this Christmas season. Um, You know, we, we think about the child coming and being born in a, in a lowly manger. We think about uh, songs that sing uh, about silent night and holy night and uh, about a, a, a child who was born and by the song's account anyways, made no seemingly made no noise, never cried, which of course is not true. Christ came as a man to take on the burden of men. So Christmas songs like Hark the Herald Angels Sing Peace on earth and mercy mild um, And hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace It came upon a midnight clear Peace on the earth, goodwill to men From heaven's all-gracious King And O oh, little town of Bethlehem And praises sing to God the King And peace to men on earth Peace there's this message of peace around Christmas time that comes up year after year after year. And this is right. We see it in Scripture as well. In Isaiah 9, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. And in Luke two fourteen says, "God, uh, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased." Romans five one, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians two, He came and He preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. And 1 Corinthians 4, I'm sorry, 14, verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And of course, the scriptures just go on and on and on about this message of peace. The gospel is peace to us, and Christ came to proclaim peace. So it's all over the place, so it's right that during the the time of the year where we celebrate the birth of Christ that we think about peace. And yet, the peace that Christ brings is not maybe what we Think of or feel when we are singing some of these songs or watching Hallmark Christmas specials or things like that. Um, In fact, Christ Himself said some very interesting things about his earthly ministry while he was here. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus himself says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. In Luke twelve fifty one, it says, Do you think that I have come to give peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. So how do we square another paradox of the Christian faith? Where on the one hand, Christ came at Christmas to bring peace to the earth, and on the other hand, Christ outright denies the fact that he came to bring peace to the earth. That's kind of where we'll be living this morning, in this, this paradox, this tension um, that Christ brings as the light of the world. So let's pray together. Gracious Father, you are good to send your Son to us and to give us peace that passes understanding. You're kind to send your Son to Uh, who lived a life of obedience sent of the Father to be the light of the world. And God, I pray this morning, wherever we are, whether we're in front of computers or not watching anything but only listening, or sitting on comfortable couches, in pajamas or in uh, suits, wherever we may be, God, um, meet us where we're at this morning. Speak uh, in power through me. Fill us with your Spirit. Give us spiritual eyes to see, God, heal us our congenital blindness we need you God we need uh, your word and we need your spirit even further because without your spirit we can't even understand your word give us a sixth sixth sense this morning God to comprehend uh, the things that you have said have mercy too on me as uh, I struggle to feed um, feed a meal this morning God not that you're there's anything deficient in your word, but certainly there's much deficient in me. So overcome, God. We know that you can, and you do it every week. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are going to be in John chapter 9 this morning, so uh, do open up that app. Have your Bible on the couch, um, wherever you are. Let's, let's read together. Um, John chapter 9 we will be focusing on the first seven verses. And the word of the Lord says this. As he passed by, this is Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man that was uh, blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or that his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. So far in John, Jesus has been, as he does in all the Gospels and we know him for, has been causing problems uh, amongst the Pharisees and the religious system uh, of the Jews in the day that he lived. Jesus says over and over again in the chapters and verses preceding ours this morning that he was sent by the Father that Jesus is in cahoots with the Father, that Jesus does what the Father asks him to do and he says what the Father asks him to say. He said it over and over again that he is not operating unilaterally, but that he comes from the Father. It says in John six forty six that he has seen the Father. It says says he, he teaches the Father's teachings. He has not come of his own accord. He's giving God's judgments. Anyone who knows him knows the Father. He does nothing on his own authority, but he speaks what the Father has taught him. He does not seek his own glory, but he seeks the glory of the Father. And we'll see this morning that he is doing also God's works. So Jesus is constantly at every turn with the Pharisees and with the disciples and with people that he's healing and teaching that he is acting out of obedience to the Father. That the Father, in fact, sent the son and of course we saw that in John 1 um, in the last few weeks in verse 1 we learn about this man who says that this man was born uh, he was blind from birth he passed by he saw a beggar this beggar had been born blind from birth he could not see he never saw he never saw the light of any kind he was blind from birth and there's two kinds of lights and this passage talk deals with both. One is a is physical light. The, the things that we the light that we interact with on, on a daily basis. Uh, it's 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 elec- electromagnetic radiation to get scientific about it where everything you see is particles and photons refracting off of objects that are in our surroundings, that are wrapping around them and bending around them. And depending on how the light hits it, it casts shadows and there are highlights and low lights. And in this way, we interact with the world that's around us. Everything that we touch and feel, we know is there even from a distance because of this mechanism that we have to be able to perceive light. Everything that, that comes at us that we see is light. Um, I think it's really interesting and, and strange, maybe I'm alone in this, I don't know, but it blew my mind one time when I I, I was watching a video or something that was explaining the science of, of of light, that your brain, my brain, our brains exist in complete darkness. They're in your skull, and it's completely dark where your brain is, and yet we've been given these instruments, these eyeballs, that turn the electromagnetic radiation that we see into electronic signals that then penetrate that darkness into our brain and allow us to perceive the world around us. This man had none of that. He never saw. He was born blind. Darkness, that that physical darkness, is also something that man uh, naturally fears there's a, I remember this great adventure that I had when I was like a sophomore or so in high school. Uh, Up in Rincon Valley, there was this tall hill, and most people probably know it as the hill with the cross on it, or at least it used to have a a very obvious and prominent cross on it. It was up behind the school, and I remember on one weekend, a a couple friends and I hiked up to that cross, which we had done a number of times, and it was was late in the evening. It was probably four or so, and it was in the winter, Um, and we decided that we would just keep going. So we walked up past the cross, up into this forest, and uh, as we were walking, we heard this chink, 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 and we looked down, and there's bullet shells all over the ground, and of course, that really probably has, was very insignificant, someone's target shooting or whatever, but we were creating this story in our mind, like, man, we're really, we're really pushing the envelope. We're having a serious adventure here. There's bullets. There's probably a murderer out here who's going to try and track us down. We keep walking, and we finally find a road, we're like, let's take the road. We'll, instead of walking back through the forest, it was get, getting kind of dark. Like, let's just take the road, and we'll get home that way. And as we walked along this road, we realized that we didn't know where this road was, and it was getting darker and darker, and we're like, it might take us five times longer to take this road than to hoof it back down the mountain where we came from. So we talked together, and we decided, let's do it. Let's, let's, just, let's just go back the way we came. It won't be that bad, whatever. So we're walking back, and then on that road... Where there wasn't before, all of a sudden now there was this gate that had closed, this big iron gate that had closed. And we're like, oh no, we can't, we can't even go back the way that we planned. And we're, what are we going to do? And we found a little dial pad that was next to the, uh, next to the gate that allowed us to call the house um, that evidently we had trespassed their property on, uh, against. And uh, so we decided, to, we mustered up the courage to go ahead and do that. So we call, and this gruff you know, voice answered, Hello. Sir, uh, we're at your gate and we need to get through. And why do you need to get through? And we explained this story about how we had wandered up over the mountain through his property and now we're locked out. And he was not happy about that, rightfully so. But he decided eventually we persuaded and prevailed upon him to open the gate. So he opens the gate and we walked through the, past the property and it was just it was just so creepy. It was getting dark, the mist was settling on the top of the mountain, and as we kind of walked by, we saw this like just very blurry in the distance, this porch and this man opens the door and there's these two giant dogs that are sitting up next to him and he's standing there just watching and we couldn't like it was it was what you're imagining right now we couldn't make out features he was far away but there was this hazy outline of these two dogs and this big this big man watching us trespass his property as we walked by. Um, Now, I'm sure over the years, the story has become more elaborate and mysterious in my mind, but that is how I remember it. And we walked by, and we walked back through that forest, and I remember we could not see the hand in front of our face. By now, it was dark. The mist had settled on the mountain. We were under this grove of trees, and we were touching a tree and then walking past it and then touching another tree and walking past it and groping and feeling our way back to Uh, where we had climbed up this mountain and it was scary even though we were together we i mean we could not see and man has this natural fear of the dark um it's the opposite of peace when we're in the dark and that's what this man lived with from birth he could not see there's a second kind of light it's a it's a it's a spiritual light and that spiritual light is very different in that it won't help you thread a needle and it won't help you drive down the freeway But it is more important than physical light. Without physical light, you you might bump into things. You may hurt yourself. You may even walk off a cliff and die. But without spiritual light, you will have a very difficult time in this life, a life uh, nearly devoid of of peace. Uh, But in the next life, the consequences are even worse. In the next life, uh, without spiritual light, there are dire consequences. Without spiritual light, we are left to groping at our emotional, psychological, existential, and eternal surroundings, and, and more importantly, we are left guilty and condemned by both our consciences and God. Spiritual light Is actually more important than physical light. So in verse 2, let's move on. um, The disciples have a question for Christ. It says, As his disciples, as they passed by, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There's this idea in Scripture, and it is in Scripture, that the sin that men experience is the result I'm sorry, the the struggle, the difficulty the infirmities that man deals with in his existence is the result of previous specific sin. You you think about uh, Noah the the inhabitants of earth at Noah's day. Why were they wet and drowning? Because of sin. It was directly because of sin that God brought that hardship upon uh, the people of earth to put it lightly. Or Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, we hear that the city was destroyed uh, by fire raining out of heaven. Why did that happen? Why did those people suffer that uh, that destruction? It was because of their sin. And uh, this, like I said, this actually this is in scripture. If We read from. Deuteronomy where the second commandment is given in chapter 5. It says you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And listen here for the Lord your God, for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Conversely, it says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So there is scriptural basis for the belief or the question of the disciples here, uh, but it's not, it's not the only option. Uh, this idea of sin um, causing our lives to be difficult, I see as, as a parent all the time, and I'm sure that the parent's out there do as well In our household we call them natural consequences When we tell May Don't touch that, that's hot Don't touch that, that's hot We're, put, we're putting the, the Pyrex dish On the table, we're ready to eat dinner I just came out of a 425 degree oven Don't touch it, it's hot And then in her sinful disobedience Touches And gets burnt and cries Natural consequence It does. It's not always this Supernatural, you know, uh, flooding of the earth or fire and brimstone from heaven that produces uh, suffering when we sin. There's just a real pragmatic element to obedience and reward and disobedience and, um, and hardship and difficulty. But like I said, this is not always the case. This is emphatically not always the case. Think about Job. Remember uh, Job, this righteous man who was blameless, the scripture says, who went through incredible hardship, who lost all of his children, who he was very rich, and he lost all of his belongings. Um, he, his own body broke out into boils, and he, he was uh, in a lot of pain. And remember Job's miserable friends, their miserable advice? Uh, one of these guys, Eliphaz, uh, in Job 4 says, Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And he's telling Job, look, Job, you sinned at some point. You did something horrible. You need to confess it. You need to fess up to whatever you did because the calamities that you're experiencing don't just happen out of the blue. Similar to what the disciples are thinking about this blind man, I'm sure. But later in Job, Job 42 God is now talking to Eliphaz, and he says, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my, servant, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer them up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So we can't assume that because something is happening to us or someone that we know uh, that is negative, that, they, that there's direct, a direct correlation between, between that problem and their error, their sin. Let's move on. Verse 3 through 5. This is Jesus' response to the question of the disciples. It says, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or that his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay? So it's not because of the sin of the blind man. It's not even because of the, the sin of the blind man's parents. But he has this so that God's work might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. So Jesus is going to use this man's blindness to express the light that he is. Now this, this, I think, is very easy for us, again, from our couches, even from you know, us 2,000 years after the fact, to, oh yeah, Jesus, that's right. This guy, he didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. Jesus, he's... He's doing it to show his mighty works. But <clears throat> what if you're the blind man? What do what you, what? And, you know, he's not necessarily in on this conversation. But this man was born blind. Remember the fear I was explaining earlier. Uh, that man lived with that all the time. I mean, obviously, I'm sure he, he got used to it, but he lived a very difficult life. He, was, he spent his days sitting on the ground begging for alms. He could not see. He probably did hurt himself and stumble. He probably carried a cane, and probably some punk kids gave him a hard time um, and kicked the cane out from under. I mean, who knows what, what this guy dealt with? And Jesus says, he was born this way that I can show the works of God. I mean, this, this, this can, just to be honest, raise some concerns about the goodness of The goodness of God. There's a term called theodicy, uh, and it it has to do with uh, the problem of evil and the goodness of God and how we square those, those two things. Theodicy itself, the word, uh, theos means God And uh, DK, I think I'm not sure about the pronunciation there from, from the Greek Has to do with trial or judgment So literally theodicy is the, the trial Or the judgment of God And it goes something like this The way that we, that we think about it In our Christian worldview That God on the one hand Is, is om, omni, uh, omnipotent He's all powerful Okay, There's nothing he can't do He's also omniscient So he knows everything that there is to know There's nothing hidden from his view There's, he, he lacks no knowledge of any kind and also, uh, God is, all, uh, is omnibenevolent. He's all good, okay? So when we look at those things, maybe it's, it's a little easier to square the idea of evil when one of those things is missing. So maybe God is he's all powerful and he's all-knowing, but he's not all good. He can do anything. He knows about everything, but he's, he's capricious. He's, he's evil. He doesn't seek ultimately the good of, of the world that he created. That makes room for evil, okay? Or maybe he's all knowing, he knows everything, and he's all good, but he's impotent. He can't, he can't do anything, so therefore, the devil can thwart him, we can thwart him, nature can thwart him. Um, there's certain things that he just can't do. That makes room for evil. Or maybe he's all powerful, there's nothing he can't do, and he's all good, but he's not all knowing. He would stop the evil, he just doesn't know that it's happening all the time. He can't be everywhere at once. So he has the power and he has the will. He's good, but he's, he's not, he doesn't know where all the problems are. That also makes room for evil. But that notion of God, any notion that excludes either his, his all goodness, his all knowing, or his all power is, is a God that's less than God. It's a God that's less than the, the God of Scripture. So if we have a God who's all powerful, all, all knowing, and all good— in our, in our human way of thinking, that, n- that necessarily means that evil doesn't exist. The problem, of course, is that evil very obviously exists. It's all around us. We can't deny the presence of evil. And I'm not here to answer the question of, of theodicy this morning, uh, the, the answer of the problem of evil, but I think that there's something that can help us get to uh, maybe shine a little bit more light on on the notion of uh, the problem of evil. I think if we understand rightly the purpose of creation, the purpose of the world, it helps us to understand the problem of evil. And we see it here in John 9. This man is born blind, which is a horrible thing, and it was for the purpose of displaying the works of God in him. The purpose of the universe, I would put forward, is to show the mercy and righteousness of God. The mercy and the righteousness of God. And the problem is, from our standpoint, you can't show mercy without wickedness. You can't show mercy without offense. And likewise, you can't show righteous judgment apart from the existence of evil. What are you going to judge? So God in this mysterious and complicated way benefits from the fallenness of the world in which we live because because of the sin that has entered the world through Adam and has raged ever since, God is able to show mercy to whom he will show mercy and he is able to condemn and judge at the same time. John Piper says that God is the one being in all of the universe universe for whom seeking his own praise is the ultimate loving act. For him, self-exaltation is the highest virtue. That's hard for us to understand sometimes and hard for us to swallow, but I'm compelled by the scripture to see that as true. Um... God can do what he pleases. He sits in the heavens and he is accomplishing something for his own glory through the events of human history, even the really horrible ones, even this man's blindness. So we might we might think then okay okay so God God can be good he can maintain his integrity as all powerful all good and all knowing so long as he solves the problem we'll give him we'll give him the pass we'll say yes you can do that but what about when he doesn't solve the problem I mean he he ends up ultimately not to, you know spoilers he cures this guy's blindness but what about what about someone like like Mark Stone who we lost very recently. Um, Mark was a righteous man who I, I loved spending time with I, I think back on my times uh, doing uh, VBS or Bible Adventure Week with him and doing skits and he's just this funny vivacious guy um, who I miss God did not heal him, I mean we prayed fervently right that, that God would take away his ALS which God very, very easily could have done, he didn't but church, didn't you in the last year of Mark's life witness the works of God in him? Laughter through, through a mouth that he had a hard time feeding. Prayers for us, for you, no doubt, from a man who himself was in desperate need of prayer and whose life was, was extinguishing before our eyes. Um, the joy of Christ seen through sunken eyes. I mean, we saw the works of God in Mark's passing. I know, I did. You know? And without that, we, we, we wouldn't have seen that work of God. And that's really difficult for us who miss him and particularly difficult for his wife and kids. But we witnessed the work of God through, um, through Mark's ALS. And we love Jesus more I love Jesus more because of uh, the way that that Mark left this life. In William Barclay's commentary on this passage, he says, When trouble and disaster fall upon a man who does not know God, then that man may well collapse. But when they fall on a man who lives and walks with God, they bring out the strength and beauty and endurance and nobility which are within a man's heart when God is there. The spiritual light that Christ gives us as his followers is impressive and it shows the works of God even in the midst of very difficult times. In verse five, Jesus calls himself again, and he's done this before, the light of the world. It says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He's the light of the world. We've talked about what light does. Physical light helps us interact with the world around us. We can see things. And spiritual light enlightens our hearts and allows us to live for God in a way that is is peaceful. But light, imagine a, a candle in the darkness, just a single candle. Light does two things, actually, and this is just physical light. Physical light will will illumine the things that are close to it. It'll warm things that are close to it, and it also defines the things that are not close to it and are are distant. Think about I mean, Abby tells me a story when she was in Romania where she would go go into the bathroom and, and flick on this light, and immediately a thousand roaches would scatter as the light comes on, and they would, they would recede to the darkness. And when that light comes on, there's two things. You can see where there are roaches, and you can see where there are not roaches, where the roaches run out to the darkness and leave the light, leave the light uh, in, in the middle. There's like a quote from Anne Frank. It says, "'Look how a single candle can both defy and define darkness.'" And Christ is that light of the world. It does exactly that. He, defined, he, he defies the darkness by making room for the light and illuminating the truth, but it also defines the darkness and shows uh, what is and is not in that light. Skipping ahead a little bit uh, down, if you'll look at verse 39, we'll see that the, the Pharisees are squarely outside of this light. Uh, chapter 9 verse 39 says uh, Jesus said for judgment I came to this world that those who do not see may see and those who may see may become blind and says some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him are we also blind Jesus said to them if you were blind you would have no guilt but now that you say we see your guilt remains Jesus is the light of the world is about to do both, both things. He's about to illuminate and also darken. This man needs to see the light, Jesus says, and I am going to be his light. I am the light of the world. And at the same time, he's like, this is going to drive the Pharisees bonkers. And it's going to show them, it's going to show the world, it's going to show us now here today that they were in fact in the darkness Though they claim to be able to see. Let's look at the final two verses together, Uh, verse 6 and 7. This is Jesus' reaction to, or Jesus' action towards the blind man. Verse 6 saying, Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. He said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and he washed, and he came back seeing. Seems like a really strange way to heal someone, um, but it's what Jesus does. He spits in dirt and wipes mud on the guy's eyes. Um, there's some uh, some evidence that people of this time saw saliva as having healing properties. It was supposed to do anything from heal uh, snake bites to warts to epilepsy. Um, and just the fact that Jesus took an action and actually touched this guy and put mud in his eyes may have helped him believe. Look, he's thinking he's doing something to me. I don't know what it is. He's, there's something wet and and cold in my eyes. He's doing something. Maybe it worked. And no, oh, he spit. I heard him spit. He's using saliva to heal me. Um, there's something about the way, the method that Jesus uses in this case that may actually aid in the man's, made in the man's uh, aid rather in the man's faith. In Genesis 2, we know that, that God made man out of the dust of the earth. So maybe he's physically actually recreating eyes that this guy was not born with. Who knows? We don't, we don't have the mechanism of, of healing here. But it's possible that the method may have aided the man's faith. And then beyond that, notice too that he doesn't just heal him with the mud. Put the mud on and it's like a, a, a medicine. I may mean, have heard ridiculous notions of, of people trying to explain that there was something in the mineral content of the dirt in this area that, that you know, that's ridiculous. You know, this is the, the son of God who is making a miracle here through means. But beyond that, he doesn't just heal him immediately with the mud, but he gives him a command. He says to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And this too may have aided the man's faith, right? I mean, if someone wipes mud in my eyes, if someone wipes mud across my face, what am I immediately going to want to do? I want to go wash it off, especially if it was made with their saliva, right? So he commands the guy to go wash in the pool. And this is different than what Jesus has done in the past or what he'll do in the future. I think about the story from Luke uh, chapter 17 when Christ heals the 10 lepers. Um, He tells them, to go and present themselves to the priest. That's not what he tells this guy here. You know, maybe he could have just as easily rub, rubbed mud in his eyes, go show yourself to the priest. But no, he says, go wash in the pool. And God does not always just uh, most frequently. In fact, in the in the scriptures, you'll see that He requires an act of faith before the healing actually actually happens. God does not always ask so obvious, however, a task. For us, he doesn't always ask such an easy thing, but his mercy is so rich and his love is so strong that the first step of faith that he requires is very often downhill. He's so patient and kind with us. Um, you think about the command uh, to be saved in Acts: says, "Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved." The belief is required in order for the action to take place, but it's often, it often starts with a very simple act of obedience. So regardless of whether it was the mud or whether it was the pool, we do know in the end that this guy knows the, knows the truth. He doesn't come to the Pharisees later in the chapter and we're not going to go there, but he doesn't come and explain, well, Jesus, there's great mineral content in the soil here, and uh, Jesus spat in it, and, you know, saliva has has medicinal qualities as well, and so he put that in my eyes, and now I can see. The guy's a doctor. Nor does he say uh, there's something holy or special about the pool of Siloam, and I washed it, and that guy over there who has a broken leg, he should jump in there too, because this water will clean him, will, will heal him. No. No, he says, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, speaking of Jesus, and yet he opened my eyes. It is Christ who did the healing here, and the blind man knows it. And this is an analogy uh, for the work and light, light of Christ. Yes, Christ, Christ comes to uh, the world. He shows the Father. He illuminates the Father to us. He is our spiritual light. And there's, some, there's, there's something interesting in verse 7. Sometimes the Bible will give its own translation, and it does that here. It says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Christ is constantly over and over again pointing to himself, pointing to himself. Go to the pool that is called sent. Um, the, the pool is called sent because it comes. It was, it was built under the reign of Hezekiah from this spring outside the city. It was carved through like almost 2,000 feet of of stone to a pool inside the city, so that when uh, the Assyrians came to siege the city, they would have water on the inside. So the water was sent essentially from this spring inside the city. But Jesus, over and over again, as we mentioned earlier, in John, has been saying that he is one with the Father. He is sent by the Father. He's doing the Father's works. In John 5, 23-24, it says, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 5.36, 38. The works of the Father, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have heard, for front, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. And even here in our passage this morning, John, let's see, um, four. We must work the work, John John 9, 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. So Christ is constantly sent, sent, sent. He sent me. I've been sent. I'm being sent. I'm here to do the works of him who sent me. And now he sends this guy, this blind guy, to a pool called sent. It's intentional. It is intentional. Christ is pointing to himself as the light giver of the world, the light of the world, the source of, the solution for all of life's and afterlife's problems. He is the sent one. Christ is the true pool of Siloam. So just like Naaman was asked to go wash in the Jordan, if you're familiar with that story from Second Kings, or later as a man with a withered hand was asked to stretch out his hand and then he was healed, or the invalid was told to take up his bed and when he did that, he was healed. Or the ten lepers that we mentioned earlier were asked to go to the temple, and then the passage says, as they went, they were healed. The healing that Christ asks of, or the healing that Christ provides for the world, is delivered through faith, through acting. It's delivered through acting. Uh, as we, we wrap up here. Um, I can't, I can't help but think about the problem that the world is in currently, and I know Tim touched on this a little bit last week, but we have, and, this, and just to preface this, this is not a, a judgment on anyone or how you do or do not deal with the coronavirus, so please don't hear that, and forgive me if I come across stronger than I intend. Um, but we've been told that there's a virus out there, and looking at the numbers even recently— I'm going to be generous and say it kills 2% of people. Because of that 2% risk, we wear masks everywhere we go. We have not had Thanksgiving. We will not have Christmas. We have not been meeting inside for church. People are cloistering themselves and not seeing family. We're not going to restaurants. The fair didn't happen this year. People have lost their jobs. They've lost their livelihood. They've had to close their businesses. And it's because it's serious. It's because 2% of people who get it die. Well, I'm here here to tell you, and I wish the (laughs) the whole world could listen. I suppose they can because it's on the Internet, right? But um, you will die one day. 100% 100% of the people listening to my voice will die one day. It might, be because, it might be by the coronavirus, it might be by a car crash, it might be by cancer, it might be by something more horrible or less horrible, but you're going to die. It will happen. And what do we do about that? Almost nothing. The unspecific threat of death to us is, is essentially meaningless. I was talking to a friend over the summer at a wedding who, uh, you know, we were were talking about this subject, but he was explaining um, graveyards, that people used to walk to church with their family every morning, and the church, the church property or the parish had a, like a church graveyard, and this was just kind of how it worked. If you're going to die, if you're going to be buried, you're going to be buried next to the church in the cemetery. And so as we walk to church, kids, you're pushing up daisies someday, next Sunday. Hey kids, there's grandma. She's dead. There's this constant reminder of, of death. And I was thinking about it, where, where are our cemeteries today? You have to, you kind of have to go seek them out. I mean, there's military cemeteries that are, that are more prominent, but I think about just the different cemeteries in Sonoma County. They're like off the beaten path. They are tucked away, and we want to do everything we can to hide, the, to hide the idea of death, even though it is coming. Death and taxes, right? Those are the four sure things. Can you imagine if we, as a people, not only realized that, yes, we would die one day, but also that we would meet a maker who is furious with us, who is furious with us, Listen to Psalm five five. It says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Or Psalm seven, eleven through twelve. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will wet his sword and he will bend and ready his bow. And it's gonna happen to every single person in on earth throughout all of history. If people understood this, the same people who are willing to gladly put on a mask, who are gladly willing, or not gladly, but like certainly willing to not have family over for Christmas because someone might get sick and there's a 2% chance that they might die, et cetera, et cetera. If people understood the risk that they were at that was not 2%, but 100%, churches would be packed. If people understood that God is angry with their sin and they're going to die and have to answer to him, churches would be packed. I mean, if we answer the reality of of our mortality and the reality of our sin and square that with a righteous God, we would be willing certainly to do anything if we're we're willing to do what we're doing now for a 2% risk. But there's darkness. That light of Christ has to shine in order to give that revelation. Jesus is indeed the antidote. He's the only safe and effective Vaccine against this congenital terminal blindness that we suffer from as children of Adam. But the good news is that if you find yourself rightly afraid of the wrath of God, Jesus has come to bring you peace. Jesus talking to the scribe in Mark 12, um, he says, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And if that's how you feel this morning, if you, if you understand that you, if, if you are rightly afraid of that death, if you are rightly afraid of facing God, you're not far from the kingdom. I'd say you are within the radiant circle of the light of Christ. On the other hand, there is a great danger in believing that you can see what you cannot see. I don't know if you, how many of you have been in like a house of mirrors at a carnival or at a museum. Um, where you're constantly just banging into stuff, walking around, trying to get through the maze and hitting your head. Can you imagine if someone was timed? you got to get through there quickly. Like they'd just be smacking, and smacking, and smacking, and hurting themselves, running around. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. And that's what people in this life do who think that they can see when they do not know Christ. I'm going to read for us uh, the, the end of this chapter as we as we draw to a close. And have that in mind. Listen and watch for the Pharisees and their attitude who believe that they can see when they cannot see, whereas this man who was blind has, has new sight, and not only physical sight, but also spiritual sight. Listen for the darkness of the Pharisees and, and do con- consider your own heart in this. John 9, verse 24 through 34 says, For For the second time they called the man who had been born blind in and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I think they're looking again for the mud. They're looking for the water. He answered them, I've told you already. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples? I love that. The blind man's troll the Pharisees. And they reviled him saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, but he healed my eyesight. He gave me vision. He opened my eyes. It's a rhetorical question. How is it that you don't know where he came from? Look what he did to me. You realize that I was blind from birth. I couldn't see. My life has been horrible up until this point, and now I can see, and it's because Jesus healed me, and you don't know where he came from? The blind man goes on and says, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This is in, That's pretty incredible words from a guy who was a beggar born blind, but now has had his spiritual and physical eyes opened. And the Pharisees answered him and said, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. So the Pharisees, though believing they can see, cannot see. And it's real obvious here as they cast this man who was born blind who can now see out because he can't sufficiently answer their questions. He just wants to give glory to Christ. Charles Spurgeon says this, says it is not our littleness that hinders the work of Christ, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ. It's our strength. It's not our darkness that hinders Christ. It's our supposed light that holds his hand back. So in closing, as we, as we consider the light of Christ in your own struggles, in your own infirmities, whatever they may be, Maybe may be due to your own sin. It may be due to the sin of, of someone else, the sin of another. Or maybe God is simply displaying his work. He's displaying the peace that he brings in the midst of difficulty to those who are observing, observing around you. In any case, whatever the case may be, come to him. Come to him in this season. And as you do, may the light of Jesus illuminate the dark places of your soul bringing sight where there was only blindness before illuminating what was dark warming what was cold and cleansing the dark stain of sin from your life. I'm going to read John 8:12 in closing. It says again Jesus spoke to them saying, "I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness." but we'll have the light of life. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we are thankful for your word this morning. We're thankful that you sent the Son who lived a life of obedience to the Father, who was sent by the Father for the people of earth, sinful children who had walked away. God, uh, what love that you show what peace you give to the undeserving. And so we worship you because of that, God. We worship your justice. We worship your mercy, God. We want to be, uh, we want to be all in on the purpose of God and creation to give yourself glory because we know that that is what is best and right and most loving, in fact, most good. Help us in the suffering of life as people who know you to suffer well to suffer as those who have hope for the life to come, who are filled with peace because of the goodness of God that we've experienced in Christ, the light of the world. And Lord, for those who may be hearing this morning who do not know you, who are defined only as not being in the light, who think that they have sight and vision when they do not have sight and vision, God, I pray that you would be merciful um, and shed... uh, the light of your spirit in their hearts, God, and that they would see you through Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd bless your church as we continue to um, struggle through this season of being apart. We pray that you would bring it to a close quickly, and that we could again uh, join together physically in each other's presence to. Uh, extol the goodness of our light-giving God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.